Hello, everybody, and welcome to another beautiful Thursday morning. You're listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And I have a great show for all of you today. Marie Bertem will be joining me. She is the policy director at the Cornucopia Institute. And I'll tell you more about the Cornucopia Institute in a little bit. It's one of my favorite organizations. Um, I refer to them a lot and share their information a lot. Um, over the years. So um, she'll be coming on a little bit. But first, I want to share with you some things in around the news, some ways you can take action. And of course, my weekly recipe with all of you. At, this week, I actually wrote about the Dirty Dozen list and the Clean 15 list, which the Cornucopia Institute released um, just last week. And the Dirty Dozen list is a list that is published every year that highlights the most toxic um, items in your produce aisle that are most heavily sprayed with pesticides. So if you're going to buy organic, those are the 12 most important items that you want to purchase organic. And then the clean 15 list is just the opposite. It's the least toxic of the produce in your produce aisle. And so if you um, are trying to watch your budget and you know buying organic is really a stretch, then just buy, make sure you buy the dirty dozen list organically. And then the clean 15, you can kind of wait. Like for instance, asparagus, you know, usually on that clean 15 list, um, you know, whereas strawberries are on that dirty dozen list and you really want to avoid buying um, traditional or conventional strawberries. You really want to make sure you get your berries organic. Um, and if you're not sure, you know, they actually print up, um, or actually have a downloadable list that you can carry with you in your wallet that is wallet size. So it's really great if you go to the environment, I'm sorry, if you go to, um, oh, it's the Environmental Working Group that does the um, Dirty Dozen list. I'll have to check that out and get back to you all. I might've made a mistake. But anyway, the environment, the um, Dirty Dozen list is really awesome. And I believe that's the Environmental Working Group, Cornucopia, Institute has a lot of other great, great lists, and I'll, we'll be talking about those in a little bit. Also, another thing I wrote about this week, which really was you know, news to me, was how mining cryptocurrency is contributing to global warming. Um, you, know, you kind of think of cryptocurrency as virtual, and you, know, not, you don't have to print it, and it's not you know, um, something that is wasteful. However, keeping that going um, the amount of energy it takes to um, keep all of that safe in a computer situation is really, really bad for the environment and uses up so much um, energy that it's really, really a problem. What they're going to do, I don't know, but they're saying that all the um, computing consumes gargantum amounts of electricity, which in turn produces gargantum amounts of planet warming emissions. And currently fossil fuels power about 60% of Bitcoin mining. So, um, you know, here we are trying to reduce our use of fossil fuels and this new monetary system, Bitcoin, which seems so um, non-polluting is actually really, really bad for the environment. So. What the solution is, I don't know, but it's something we all really need to look at. Um, I personally can't get my head around this whole crypto thing, so I'm staying away from it. But everyone has to make their own choices. But just know that it's um, really, really bad for the environment and something that we really need to look into as, um, as this progresses. Some ways you can take action uh, this week. I shared a link from the Environmental Working Group um, to help the push the environment to help push the Environmental Protection Agency to ban Dactyl. Dactyl is a cancer-linked pesticide which is banned in the EU, EU since 2009. Unfortunately, the Environmental Protection Agency has failed to protect us here because they have their um, they get so much funding and there's so much pressure from the lobbyists in the um, in the monoculture um, arena, but we really need to ban this pesticide along with so many of the other ones. So if you would please sign this petition, um, join the Environmental Working Group urging the 
EPA to ban Dachshund um, today. I mean, I was reading about it. They actually say that 60% of all kale samples, even after you wash it, still contains um, the pesticide on it. So it's really hard to get rid of pesticides once they're sprayed on the, these um, vegetables. And so we really want to try to get rid of them. I want to share with all of you this week's recipe. I made a vegan curried egg salad. I've made it before, but I was recently turned on to black salt. Um, yeah, black salt. It's really amazing thing. And this black salt um, has sulfur in it. And so it adds the flavor, gives you the flavor of eggs when you're making this mock curried salad. So the base of it is garbanzo beans. So for the ingredients, you want one can of Eden brand garbanzo beans, or you, can, of course, can make your own beans. And the reason I always promote Eden brand um, beans is because they actually cook it with seaweed, which reduces the gas. Um, you know, if you heard my show last week, I was talking to Sean, Sean Barrett about um, growing seaweed and how seaweed is being used so much, even in cattle feed, to help reduce um, the gas with cattle since that adds so much methane into the environment. And so um, all of us also very often get gassy when we eat beans, and this is a real wonderful way. So whenever I'm cooking beans, I always put some kombu in the water with my beans, and that makes them less gassy. So you want one can of garbanzo beans that you're going to drain, a quarter cake of extra firm tofu. So Usually you get a block of tofu, it's a pound, and you're going to cut it into four quarters, and you're only going to use one quarter for this recipe. A quarter cup of diced celery, a quarter cup of grated carrots, one tablespoon of fresh dill, five tablespoons of a vegan mayo, one teaspoon of curry powder, and three quarters of a teaspoon of black salt. Um, and the black salt also has a, an Indian name, and I would have to look it up. I actually don't remember it right now. But um, it's an Indian name that means black and salt. Um, so you're going to start by draining the garbanzo beans. Put them into a food processor and pulse them just until they're chopped. You don't want them pureed. You're not making hummus. You just want them really um, chunky. Um, same consistency as chopped egg. Okay. And then you place that into a mixing bowl. Press the cake of tofu between a dish towel to remove as much of the excess water as possible. And then just with your fingers, crumble that into the bowl with the garbanzo beans. And that actually gives you some of the yellow and white color differentiation that you would have with egg salad. Um, then add the diced celery, the grated carrots, and um, chop the dill up and add that as well. Mix in the mayo and the curry powder and the black salt. And then just mix it up, taste it. Um, you can adjust it to your, to your likings. If you'd like, I sometimes put in a couple teaspoons of Dijon mustard as well. And that is also nice. Um, and then I garnished it on a plate with some lettuce, tomato, cucumbers, or you can make a sandwich, put it on some delicious whole wheat sourdough bread or some gluten-free bread, whatever you like. But it's really great. And I have noticed as a vegan, there's times where I just really wanna take a sandwich. And you're limited, you know, of course you can do avocado, lettuce, and tomato, which is what I usually do. But if you want something that reminds you of the olden days of what you used to grab, um, this vegan curried egg salad really hits the mark. So I highly, highly recommend it. And now it's my pleasure to introduce to all of you, Marie Bircham. She lives in the Pacific Northwest where they actively garden and work to improve the soil wherever they are. Their educational background is in animal science and English from the University of California, Davis. And they also have a law degree from Lewis and Clark Law School. After completing law school and passing their Oregon bar exam, they practiced in animal and agricultural law for a few years before joining Cornucopia's policy team. Now as Cornucopia's policy director, Marie is particularly passionate about conservation agriculture, farm ecology, and animal welfare. Marie leads Cornucopia's regulatory advocacy work, and Marie champions authentic organic agriculture in their research, writing, education, and direct advocacy. And it's really a pleasure, Marie, to have you on. Um, like I said, I refer to Cornucopia all the time because of all the wonderful lists that they share with everybody and all the work you do educating everybody about sustainability and 
organic. So welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm glad our work has been helpful. Oh, very helpful. So I always like to ask my guests to first start, share a little bit more about their own personal history. Like, um, how did you first become interested in organic agriculture? Did you always know that you wanted to work in this area? Did you grow up on a farm? What inspired you? Sure. Um, I did not grow up on a farm, um, but my parents are avid gardeners and um, cooks, and that did certainly shape my interest in land and soil and agriculture. And ironically, after I moved out and went to college, my parents did buy a farm, and so they are now organic farmers. So <laughs> I didn't grow up on a farm, but my parents decided to become organic farmers in part because of their love of gardening. Um, and my journey has been kind of ping-ponging all over the map. I intended to become a large animal veterinarian for a long time, and so I, I studied the animal science in college um, and then got very interested in advocacy and um, part of that was seeing where I was in, at the time in California, a lot of the Central Valley um, floodplains being destroyed in favor of monoculture farming and um, I was an avid birder and that was a big part of me realizing that this was a real problem. Um, and I was also just got interested in the animal agriculture piece that influences animal welfare. Um, and all of those things kind of came together and ended up with me going to law school and studying um, these kinds of issues in the law and also just getting very interested in the regulatory policy. So how, how laws about these issues are made and how they're enforced and then what people can do about it because sometimes those laws fall short. Um, and it was just a very natural um, step into organic advocacy because organic label is some of the best we have in the U.S. Um, for supporting soil, for supporting animal welfare. Um, and that's what Cornucopia does. Um, they, they defend, we defend the integrity um, and try and improve the integrity of the certified organic marketplace. Um, and I'm really involved in research investigations uh, into agriculture and food issues there. And we also do just a lot of regulatory policy as well. So um, we often uh, are commenting on USDA, United States Department of Agriculture. For those that don't know the acronyms, uh, feel free to stop me if I say an acronym. <laughs> I don't know. Translate it. Um, but yeah, so we're often involved in commenting on actions that the USDA does and supporting continuous improvement within organic marketplace and in agriculture as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, I know, you know, uh, very often I'm on, I'm on the board of the NOFA New York, you know, and I am, have been a long promoter of organic as well. Um, and I know certified organic has been really come under question recently because of the certifiers, right? I think all organic certifiers are not the same. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and where, you know, what makes something actually certified organic and what is, um, what is that risk with some of the certifiers not being as stringent as other certifiers and the pressure that they get from lobbyists? Maybe you can just, you know, kind of paint a picture for my listeners because, um, you know, some people think, you know, organic milk from Costco is the same as organic milk from your local farm and it's clearly not. Yeah. So, it is a pretty complex system where the USDA essentially accredits the certifiers. And then those certifiers, like you mentioned, they're the ones that go in onto the farm or the processor and then certify the producer. Um, and so there's regulations that control all, all of this. So um, it is true that the certifiers are different. So where there's ambiguity in the law, for example, certifiers are given sometimes kind of broad reign to interpret that um, how they will. Um, and some certifiers interpret certain things really strictly, others interpret them more loosely. Um, and as enforcement gets better with the National Organic Program, which is the branch of the USDA that administers organic label, um, that has been getting better with education and things like that. But there's still a lot of fractures in the organic marketplace that we're constantly on the watch out for because 
having a lack of consistency causes problems, not just for consumers, but for the producers themselves. And we're losing like the small community scale organic farms at a really shocking rate because when a certifier allows a, basically what we call a factory organic type operation to come in, um, they often have the ability to undercut in price. And if someone is assuming that like their family farm organic milk down the road is exactly the same as the, you know, like you mentioned, the Costco milk. Um, they're going to buy the cheaper milk usually. Like this is common sense. Um, mm -hmm. And that will undercut that family farm who um, doesn't have all these corners they're cutting necessarily to save money. And those small community scale farms are going out of business because of that. So um there is that lack of consistency in some areas of the law just because of some ambiguity. And that's one of my jobs is to actually fight for stronger standards and stronger enforcement and also keeping the definition of um, the organic rules pretty consistent across the board. Um, but even despite that, there is organic, the organic label does stand for something and even if you're getting that milk from Costco, it's going to have benefits above and beyond uh, conventional milk. So yeah. I would emphasize that, that even if there are some problems in the marketplace, um, they st there's still a minimum standard that even that factory milk is meeting um, that we can talk about. Right, right. Yeah, like I know when they say, you know, access to the outdoors, you know, as long as there's a door somewhere down the other side of the um you know cattle house you know as long as those cows technically could go out or the chickens technically could go out that that qualifies as access to outdoors even if they never go out is that am i pick, painting an accurate picture well it's different between cattle and chicken actually so I mean, we could get into the nuances, but there's a lot more uh, rules and regulations surrounding the management of ruminant livestock. And that ruminant livestock is, is cattle and goats and sheep. Um, and they have specific rules about how long they're supposed to be on pasture for their diet. Um, so they actually are required to be on pasture and there's, and there's rules that are surrounding that. Um, poultry, unfortunately, do not have as much controlling their management, but we're hoping that will change soon. There's actually a new rule that's coming out probably this year that's going to improve that and define exactly what outdoor access is. And I can't tell you what it's going to be because it hasn't come out yet, but there was a previous mm -hmm. rule concerning this that was withdrawn that talked about um, like spacing requirements for the poultry, which would be much better than conventional agriculture and also like requirements to have vegetation outside um, and how much space they need outside and things like that. So I'm oh, good. Yeah, I'm hoping that will improve. But right now, that is true that um, outdoor access, the term is not defined, especially for poultry. Um, yeah. So your eggs and your chicken and your turkey um, don't necessarily, aren't necessarily seeing like grass or vegetation. Um, right. And again, like as you mentioned, it depends on the certifier because some certifiers already consider outdoor access to include access to the soil access to vegetation and others do not so right very right. complicated Legal yeah they have to they have to more you know be more stringent about you know the rules for the certifiers that everybody's kind of comparing apples to apples i think i know just recently the origin of livestock rule um was finally upheld and um now you know organic um, organic operations have to get a cow that was born to an organic mom, mm -hmm. uh, organic parent. Um, but what about the origin of livestock when you're actually buying meat? I know somewhere along the line, they stopped having to say where meat was, came from, where your meat came from. It used to be. And I don't know if I'm going outside of what you know. So forgive me if I am. I know this was not what we discussed. But, you know, when I talked about origin of livestock um, on my show recently, there was a question as to whether that also um, dealt with where the actual meat came from when you're purchasing meat. 
Do you know, do they have to say that again? Or is that still yes, um, allowed think, to not be there? I think you're talking about country of origin. Labor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. That hasn't changed. So the origin of livestock has to do with, um, in organic, at least it has to do with, uh, where the animal you're eating, what certification status it had. Um, so it has always been the case for beef, for example, um, that young animals have to be certified organic since the last third of gestation, which is the rule. So basically, as you said, exactly an organic certified organic mother, um, and producers are allowed to have a one-time transition. So if a conventional producer is transitioning to organic, they are allowed to then have animals that are not organic from birth, but just one time. So that's the kind of idea is that you, you're allowed to do it once and you're not allowed to sort of take animals that are in the conventional system and constantly transition them into organic. And that has been a problem in dairy. And luckily this rule that just um, was finalized this month um, is going to end that practice. But it has always been the case in beef that um, livestock have been organic since birth, essentially. Mm-hmm. So um, tell us about Cornucopia, all the different things that Cornucopia Institute does. Yeah, we do so much. Um, uh, apart from my role where I'm really focused on regulatory advocacy and um, consumer education, um, where I do a lot of research and writing um, our reports and um, sort of delving into the deep nitty gritty details about animal agriculture. Um, we have these amazing scorecards, um, which you can see on our website, where we rate every organic brand um, on a set of criteria. Um, we have scorecards for eggs, for dairy, for poultry, like chicken and turkey, um, for beef, and then a whole bunch of other commodities like snack bars, um, yogurt, uh, cottage cheese, things like that. Um, and each scorecard. You also, you also do suntan lotion, don't you? Uh, we is do. that you or is that? No, we don't <laughs> we get confused. We do suntan lotion. Um, we tend to Some focus. beauty products. Yeah, we focus on um, food agricultural products. Um, with our work. And Mm -hmm. um, so the scorecards, uh, we send out surveys to farmers and producers, and we also do independent investigation into all these brands to make these scorecards up. And we keep them as updated as we can. And we also do, every few years, we do an entire redo of each scorecard um, to keep that scoring mechanism up to date with the new information we have. Um, We also have a series of campaigns, which are really exciting. Um, For those familiar with us, you've probably seen our social media work on this surrounding our campaigns. Um, We have ongoing campaigns in organic dairy, organic beef, poultry, eggs. Um, I'm really excited because this year we're redoing our egg work to update it. Um, And organic eggs are really important to a lot of consumers. And our egg scorecard is among the most popular. So I'm really excited about that work. Um, and we also do a lot of sort of, um, besides the consumer education, we do a lot of regulatory work, as I think I mentioned, where we're constantly um, in conversations with other um, nonprofits in the movement, other farm policy groups, um, and farmers as well. We, we really try and keep like a thumb on the pulse of how the organic marketplace is going. And part of that is efforts to be watchdogs. So we also um, try to call out the industry when it's doing bad actions and also the government when it's doing bad actions. So um, we also have that role in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. I know you mentioned the NOP, the National Organic Program, um, as being the the enforcer of some of the the organic label. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the integrity of that program is that do you feel like that program is um is still being is still trustworthy or do you feel like that's been infiltrated by a lot of the um agribusinesses yeah i think um it depends on how you define trustworthy um i think it is part of the government so it's sort of can be bogged down with 
the government bureaucracy. Um, and that is just a continuous problem with the way government agencies work. And it's not necessarily unique to the USDA or the NOP. Um, and one of the things the NLP has struggled with for a very long time is a lack of funding. Um, for many, many years, their enforcement team was completely underfunded and they were just overworked. And so a lot of enforcement was not getting done. Um, they have recently been got, gotten more funding and we've, we're seeing an uptick in enforcement action and um, standards development and all these things. So um, I'm very hopeful. I think the program is actually getting better. Um, and we watch that very closely. Um, there are some concerns always about industry having like a backdoor way to influence the government process as, as always. Um, and we just keep an eye out for that and do our best to call that out when we see it. Um, and I do think it happens sometimes, but in general, I would say the program is, is doing the best they can often with a poorly dealt hand basically mm -hmm. yeah um it's not one of the things that people are lobbying to get funded mm -hmm. the way um the way they need to um what would you say are some of the big um challenges to the organic marketplace right now yeah i'd say one of the biggest challenges is is exactly that the, our, there are industrial organic farms that have infiltrated. And um, the other big problem is just that it's been slow to update the rules and regulations. The rules and regulations were, were made with the intention that there would be continuous improvement and there has not been that. Um, and those two things go hand in hand, the industrial agriculture sort of infiltrating is because of the slow improvement in the standards. Um, when the original act was passed to create this um, federally enforced label, um, I don't think they knew how big it would get and how popular it would get and how powerful of a movement it would be. Um, or if they hoped for that, they didn't anticipate that it would become such an attractive arena for factory farms. Um, and because of that, they hoped it would just continue to be a, a safe space for diversified community scale farmers to make a living um, and survive in an age where conventional agriculture says, get big or get out. And that get big or get out mentality has somewhat entered the organic marketplace. It's still a safe place for smaller farms in many ways, but it's extremely challenging for farmers out there. Um, all farmers, not just organic farmers, but organic farmers especially are, are feeling a pinch right now. Um, so I would say those are the two biggest challenges that, that are very related to the um, lack of continuous improvement and that industrial agriculture sort of moving into the organic marketplace. Um, mm -hmm. And I, like I said, I, I have seen small improvements in the National Organic Program, so I'm hopeful that will get better with time. Um, there's also been movement to link organic agriculture to the fact that it's climate friendly, which is absolutely the case. And um, the current administration is very interested in that in agriculture. So we're hoping that the organic marketplace will grow and become more of the norm as opposed to this um, fringe label as it is seen in some people's eyes. From your mouth to God's ears, right? <laughs> I really hope so. Um, so you just touched on what my next question was going to be was the connection between organic agriculture and climate change. I know it's been in the news a lot how, you know, organic agriculture can help sequester carbon from the atmosphere into the soil where it's needed and can be used. Um, but how can they use it to actually help mitigate the climate crisis that we're in right now? And are there incentives like our, our farmers, I know there's been, it's been out there and people are talking about the idea of incentivizing farmers to do organic and paying them for some of their contribution to cleaning up climate, which could help keep them alive, right? <laughs> and keep them from going out of business. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we would love to see farmers being paid for what we call like conservation agriculture and conservation management practices. And 
the science is very clear on this, actually, um, that there are certain farming practices that have all of these benefits, not just to climate health, but to nutrition, to animal welfare, to soil health. Um, but speaking specifically to climate change, um, it goes beyond even just carbon sequestration. We do know that healthy soil stores far more carbon than unhealthy soil. And we do know that managing livestock in certain ways and managing how we grow crops in certain ways sequesters more carbon. But also we're finding in the research that practices that are either required by organic production or are very common by organic producers um, cause benefits that are many fold for the climate. So one is just pure climate resilience. So I'm sure we all encountered some um, food disruptions uh, from the pandemic, for example, um, those food disruptions and things like that will become more common as climate change is more common because increased um, weather events um, and strange weather will harm farmers and crops and infrastructure. Um, when we have certain practices, that disruption is far less. So they're finding that not only do organic producers produce the same or more in yield with these practices, but um, these practices mean that when there are extreme weather events, they they are much more resilient. So um, it's not just about mitigating climate change, it's about surviving it too. And I think organic farming is, is one of the answers to that. And I'd be happy to talk about the specific practices too, um, but there are other benefits to like the water cycle. So we're talking about less water loss, um, less water pollution, which impacts lots of small communities around the country, as I'm sure you know. Um, and as, as far as the carbon sequestration piece goes, um, there's just, it's just incredible what healthy soil can do um, as far as storing carbon and water and filtering toxins and providing more nutrients in our food. I mean, there's just, there's no downside to having healthy soil. It's just the most miraculous thing you can think of. Um, and these conservation agriculture practices, like I said, are, are either required by organic production in the rules or are very common um, ways of tackling problems that farmers encounter. For example, pests, um, weeds, uh, fertility, things like that. So it really is moving all of agriculture more that direction makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about practices like no-till um, as far as helping to mitigate the problems with climate change? Yeah, so no-till or low-till is one of the common management practices that it's being employed and has been really well studied at this point. Um, and basically, for those not aware, no-till is basically when they don't plow or break that soil cover um, to plant into it. And then it's considered sort of a minimal or no disturbance farming method. Um, and that has been shown to increase soil health, also increase water retention and all these other beneficial things. And also because you're not breaking the soil, the carbon in the soil stays trapped in that soil for longer um, mm -hmm. and takes it out of the atmosphere, which is which is wonderful. Right. And where does cornucopia stand in relation to hydroponics? Um, you know, and hydroponics, you know, I know from my standpoint with NOFA New York, you know, people are supportive of hydroponics, but they feel like it should be a separate label because it's not the same as organic. But right now the NOP allows or um, hydroponic to be labeled organic. What is, your personal take and Cornucopia's take on that? I'm pretty aligned with Cornucopia in this. And so hydroponics, which is growing without soil, essentially, it can be growing in like an internet medium, like coconut core or in water, um, is allowed right now under the organic program. And that is in conflict with the organic rules and regulations as we read them, because the organic <laughs> rules and regulations say that producers must support soil health. Now, how are you supporting soil health if you're not using soil at all? Um, so I agree um, that if 
hydroponics without pesticide inputs is what they want to do, they should have their own separate label. Um, but if we're not going to get that, which I hope we do, there needs to be rules and regulations in place concerning hydroponics because none of the substances that are approved for use in organic agriculture have been approved with the assumption that they're going to be used in hydroponics. And there are no specific rules concerning hydroponics and container production. And so it's just existing in this vacuum, which is, mm -hmm. is dangerous for food to for food production to exist in a, a regulatory vacuum like that. Right. And also, I don't think they regulate what nutrients they're giving them or where those nutrients came from. Um, you know, I think, you know, they put something in the water to sustain the plants. But, you know, when you try to find out what it is, it's proprietary information if they don't tell you. Um, and it seems like in order to get organic, to be certified organic, they should have to tell you. Yes, supposedly they are telling the certifiers because it is true that to get it certified organic, they can't just put anything in the water to feed the plants. It has to be approved for organic production. Um, but yeah, I, I think one of the hallmarks of a truly safe and consumer-friendly food system is to have all these things be transparent. Um, and that's not just for organic. I think the entire food system should be transparent. Consumers should know what they're buying because if you know what you're buying, you can make an informed choice. If you don't know what you're buying, you can't make an informed choice. Mm -hmm. um, so I very much agree that hydroponics um, should be labeled. And if there is going to be some sort of organic hydroponics, which granted there already is, there needs to be some sort of framework for it, some sort of rule, some sort of way to guide these principles um, and make it clear to consumers what they're getting, because right now it's not clear. Right, right. And the same for, you know, transparency and everything, you know, when we get into genetically modified ingredients and things like that, um, you know, they're now trying to, you know, supposedly this new rule of, you know, being, um, being um, transparent, you know, they think having a barcode is being transparent, you know, which requires somebody to have a smartphone, which is also, you know, not accessible to everybody. And then you have to scan it to kind of find out whether your food is genetically modified, which is completely unacceptable to most of us that care about the foods we eat and are fighting for transparency. Um, I want to ask you about current research and what that's teaching us about food safety and nutrition in organic food. Um, you know, I know sometimes they say there's no nutritional difference between an organic broccoli or a traditional broccoli. Can you um, shed some light on that for us? Here, nutrition or environmental impact, things like that. I'm sorry, what's that? Um, we could talk about nutrition or food safety as far as the research is concerned, or we could talk about more of the climate change environmental impact area. Well, let's talk about, start with some food safety. Um, you know, where, where does food safety fall when you're talking about organic versus conventional? Yeah, so the research that's ongoing and especially some of the newer research is really, really fascinating. So a lot of these sort of um, assumptions of conventional agriculture that um, like keeping things sterile and clean in the field um, is safer are are not accurate um, and it's actually diversified farms that have more of like a, a functioning ecosystem we would call it like an on-farm ecosystem have a higher benefit to food safety and if we're talking about just uh, exposure to agrochemicals then there's a clear answer there so um, i'm sure most of your followers are aware that conventional agriculture uses enormous amounts of pesticides and herbicides and synthetic fertilizers and these things do have a health cost. Um, it's not talked about enough, I don't think, um, even though the research is clear that uh, continuous exposure to agrochemicals is harmful to human health in a variety of ways. Um, and it's also not usually considered that when you're eating um, a varied diet of vegetables and fruits and meat or whatever you may be eating, um, 
you're not getting exposure to just one pesticide. So for example, you may be um, eating a strawberry, for example, and it has pesticide A and B um, at levels that are considered low enough to not harm human health, right? Because that's the Food and Drug Administration does control like what they think of as low enough to hurt humans. But it doesn't take into account the fact that you're eating those two pesticides plus five other pesticides or herbicides and your other things you're eating or um, hormones that you may be getting from milk or meat or antibiotics or all of this. It's not the, the cumulative effect of these compounds is not really looked at in conventional agriculture. Um, but research shows that it has a real effect on human health. Um, mm -hmm. For example, there was a small study um, from Emory University that founded that currently used pesticides and antibiotics um, were found in conventionally produced milk, but not in milk produced using organic standards um, and organic methods, and that growth hormones levels were higher in conventional versus organic milk. Um, and conventional ag folks will argue, well, a lot of those antibiotics and pesticides were found at levels safe for human health. And my question is back to them, where's the research showing this is safe for human health? Um, mm -hmm. Because a lot of research shows it's not safe. And if we're looking at how science is done, a lot of the science showing it is safe is done by the very chemical companies that are producing those chemicals. That's the stuff that kills me, right? It's like the, you know, the um, fox guarding the chicken coop, you know, it's just, it doesn't work. You know, you're having the people that are, that are the ones that are going to benefit from the research if it's in their favor, um, doing the research, it's just not okay. You know, you need a third party to do that. Yeah. I mean, um, science, science is wonderful. It's powerful. It, it, the whole point of science is to ask the question <clears throat> why and how, and to say, okay, that study that has been studied, we're not going to look at it anymore is, um, not a good way to do science. Um, and we all, we, there's stories over and over about learning how chemicals that we allowed into our food system um, and just into our marketplace in general, we learn after the fact how harmful they are. A good example is the PFAS chemicals that are not causing a huge problem in the Northeast contaminating soil. Um, and DDT is another famous example. All these things um, we learned and you would have thought with the Roundup lawsuit that they would have, you know, made that illegal, but they still don't. You know, it's just amazing that they pay out billion, millions and millions of dollars and they don't change it. You know, it's just and also that they don't have to prove they, you know, it's almost up to the consumer to prove that it's safe as opposed to um, or to prove that it makes us sick as opposed to the companies having to prove that it's safe. It's right. just is wrong. It's yeah. just wrong. I mean, the data is clear that consumption of organic food lowers your dietary risk index of pesticide exposure from combined pesticide use. So if you if consumers can, that's a way to help um, themselves and their families if they're concerned about that risk, which mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of people are. Um, and also, we most of the studies are based on a, a grown man's weight not on a child's weight or a petite woman's weight. You know, they're based on, you know, 200 pound man, um, which is very different than if you're talking about a hundred pound woman or a 50 pound child, right? Yeah, um, yeah, again, that goes to how, how this research is performed. And, and one of my roles is when I'm looking for research is to always check those things and um, sort of go through how research was done um, all the research that I'm seeing that is is done by independent um, universities or independent groups um, shows that there's a lot of benefits to health and safety from consuming food produced with organic organic management. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's also the health of the planet. You know, it's like you're you know you're supporting people that are doing something that is good for the planet as opposed to something that's hurting the planet. Um, and what about nutrition um, studies? Are there are the, is there research being done comparing a conventional broccoli versus a organic broccoli? Um, you know, because 
I know I always talk about, you know, if the soil is rich, you know, the, the vegetables are going to have more nutrients if they're being grown in nutrient dense soil as opposed to void soil from a monocrop. Um, can you talk about that? Is there research being done in comparing the nutritional facts? There is research being done into those areas and it's ongoing um, and some of it's very new. Um, and in general, what they're showing is that organic management practices, so like the no-till and cover cropping and the same practices that actually benefit climate health, um, also increase bionutrients in food in general. And usually we're not seeing as much difference in like the macronutrients, for example, so like proteins and fats but we're seeing huge, huge differences in polyphenols and flavonoids and um, micronutrients and things like that, that have a significant impact on human health. Um, and so looking for not just organic, but organic farms that we call authentic organic because they're using all of these practices that have all these benefits um, will more often than not get you a product that has more nutrients. So you're not only getting more bang for your buck, but you're also impacting the health of your global environment and these purchase choices. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the campaigns that Cornucopia is currently working on? Yeah, so this year we're redoing our egg research, our organic egg research, and we have ongoing campaigns in organic dairy, organic beef, organic poultry, so chicken and turkey. Um, and we also, are, I'm really excited about our campaigns into soil health and produce. Um, so those are things to look forward to now and in the future. Um, and we also are constantly campaigning for better standards in organic agriculture. Mm -hmm. And what kind of um, efforts can consumers take to help create the food system that they want to, you know, to make change. Cause you know, I keep sharing, you know, I keep sharing petitions for people to sign and phone calls for people to make, do those work? I hope you say yes, because I tell them to do that. Um, but what can people, what can people do and how can they, what's the most bang for your buck as far as effort goes yeah. to make a change? I mean, things like petitions and writing to your local and federal, um, legislatures will help. But one thing that I always want to bring home to consumers is that intentional consumption is really powerful. Um, buying local and organic when you can supports the kind of production that you may want to see in the world. Um, and that is very powerful. And I think it's underestimated how powerful a consumer going to their local farmer and saying, hey, I want you know organic chicken or organic milk or organic tomatoes grown in the soil. Um, and saying, I will support you with my money to do that. Um, and another thing consumers can do apart from intentional consumption is just to keep asking questions, um, support holistic organic, support the practices that we know based on good science, support climate health, support nutrition, support community health, support animal welfare, and embracing all of those things and just doing the best you can. I, I want to emphasize that it's a hard world sometimes and, and consumers should, you know, do the best they can with where they're at. If you can't afford, you know, organic milk, um, then do the best you can buy the organic tomatoes or, or find a local farmer. Um, there's no shame in, in, you know, meeting a consumer where they're at and just asking them to be intentional in their consumption um, as much as they can. Mm -hmm. um, and does Cornucopia look at diet in, rela in relation to um, climate change? Um, do you get into that at all? Or is that just, you know, a, a different, a different area? Um, we don't necessarily state like that consumers should consume one diet over another. We just try and educate to where consumers at. So we support vegans, we support meat eaters, we support everyone in between um, with information because um, information is powerful and within that um, sphere, uh, people can change in the ways they want to as long as they're empowered with information that's accurate and true. Um, 
we certainly do talk about how consumption and diet does affect climate um, with the understanding, of course, that individual consumers are not responsible for most of the climate harm out there and they shouldn't be feel like they're responsible for that um, and that their intentional consumption in and of itself is a protest of the way you know industrialized agriculture and industry in general treats our planet mm -hmm. so can we um talk a little bit more about some of the scorecards you have i know you mentioned that you have eggs and I, if I remember correctly, I think there's actually a way that if somebody comes across a type of egg at their health food store that you don't carry, that they can actually let Cornucopia know about them, right? And they can add them to the list. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, we usually only rate <coughs> eggs um, and products that are available at retail. But if you're finding something in the grocery store, it's clearly available at retail. Um, and if you don't see that brand on our scorecard, we will add it. Um, we try to be, we try to find all the brands, but you know, their brands popping up all the time. So we may have, right. um, but yes, please email us. You can find our information to email us on our website or give us a call and we can get that added to our scorecards. So what makes a, a better organic egg versus a not as good an organic egg? Like that's what I want to try to um, clarify for my listeners is what are you rating? Are you rating how much access they get to outside? Are you rating the color of the yolk? Are you, you know, what what criteria are you rating? So our ratings focus on the production standards. So we're not looking necessarily at the finished product, like the color of the yolk, because that can be cheated. I will throw that out there. Like the color of the yolk can be cheated. What do you uh, mean? They can put color in it? Yeah. So um, a lot of egg producers will, for example, feed their poultry um, cayenne pepper to make the egg yolk really bright orange, even if those birds have never been on pasture, just as an example. No. It doesn't hurt the bird at all. I will add, they don't have taste receptors for spicy food, but it will make it look like that egg has been from a chicken that's gotten a lot of insects and grass. So, Wow. So don't, wow, that's scary. don't necessarily trust the color of the yolk, although if you know you're getting a truly pasture-raised organic egg, then maybe you can trust it, but um, that alone is not enough. So our scorecards, because we focus on production method, we usually shoot for like the top rated brands are going to be those that go above and beyond the minimum bar of organic standards. Um, and usually what that means, I'll just use eggs as an example, is the animals have been outside for the majority of their lives with exceptions for like extreme weather or things like that where they need to be protected. Um, they're allowed to experience their natural behaviors and to the fullest extent. So socializing, grooming, and in the case of chickens, like dust bathing and hunting for insects um, and eating vegetation outside and um, all those animal welfare aspects that go into that. And we also look at how dedicated they are to organic principles. So principles of avoiding antibiotics and um, inputs in general. So avoiding fertilizer use and pesticides and things like that. Those things are illegal to have an organic, but um, we look at their dedication to how dedicated they are to that production because some industrial egg producers, for example, will um, do organic eggs for a few years and in like an industrial factory farm and then switch back to conventional for a few years to make sure they can spray their barns down to get rid of any pests that have come up with organic production. Um, so that would be not dedicated and they would rate poorly on that basically. Um, so wait, if they did that, they're allowed to just go right back to being organic. Isn't there like a three, at least a three year transition period that they have to go through? Yes, there is a three-year transition period, and we've, we've found that that's one area that could use improvement, especially in eggs, um, just because of how eggs are raised in the conventional system. Um, eggs are raised in huge barns with, you know, over 20,000 birds in one house. Um, and these industrialized organic producers basically switch between free-range, conventional, and organic we found um, 
And it's not always clear if they're doing the three-year transition because the barns are, so by some certifiers, this is coming back to the certifier problem, are not considered to be a certified organic land. So the rule is that you can't, um, the land has to be under organic management for three years before you can produce organic products. And since there are some certifiers say that these barns are not certified organic, that the land itself is not being certified, which is not in the rules. That's not what the rules say. So um, like I said, we're really looking forward to those rules to update uh, the chicken production, especially. Yeah. Yeah, really. It's very confusing. And, you know, it's so hard for consumers to really know, you know, you, you know, I, I know I use the scorecards in everything and it's, you know, takes a lot of work and a lot of effort, you know, um, you know, I sit down with the scorecard before I, you know, order or go shopping, you know, to find out which brands are best. And, um, <clears throat> you know, in the summer, I always talk about also, you know, things that people are putting on their skin because people don't think of their skin as an organ and how much that absorbs as well. Um, we're almost out of time. Can you share with us, you know, one, you know, op optimistic view that you have from working at Cornucopia that you could give some light to everyone to, um, so they can leave this, this interview with a little bit of hope? Sure. <laughs> um, I think the best hope I have out there is that consumers are just becoming more interested in this kind of issue. And that gives me hope every day. Seeing consumers care about where their food comes from, how it was grown, how the animal may have been raised, uh, asking questions. We're gonna see a shift in the food system that is gonna be so powerful. Con the consumer really has the power to make a difference and I cannot emphasize that enough. And that's what gives me the most hope. It's not necessarily me fighting the federal government fighting for better regulation that's going to change the marketplace. It's, it's the consumer who really holds the power. Um, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, but consumers, you're going to keep eating, I'm assuming. So every, every choice you make and every time you're intentional about what you're buying or um, supporting in the marketplace is, is powerful and is a way to make real change. Yeah. And that, that's so true because I remember when I first became vegetarian, I'm talking, 40 years ago, you couldn't get tofu in a regular supermarket. You couldn't get organic vegetables that still had any perk to them. You only got wilty, you know, weak old, very sad looking organic vegetables. Um, so it really has um, become more mainstream. I mean, I think the natural food market um, is the, gra the fastest growing segment of the food industry right now. Would you agree? Is that an accurate statement? Absolutely. And I think it's yeah. going for exactly that reason, that consumers are, are really realizing how important it is where our food comes from. And it's it's pretty exciting time, really. Yeah. So um, why don't you share with everyone listening your website and... Um, how they can get in touch if they have any questions? Sure. Our website is www.cornucopia.org. Um, and you can find our contact information. We also have a e-newsletter that goes out regularly with um, what's going on in the organic marketplace. And we also sometimes post action alerts and other things um, when there's urgent things that we need consumer feedback on through that e-news. And if you're interested in, in checking out the scorecards we've been talking about here, you can find those on our website, www.cornucopia.org slash scorecards and um, take a look and let us know if we've missed any brands and we'd be happy to add them. Thank you. Marie, thank you so much. I have to thank you for the work you're doing and um, the choices you've made to help make our planet a better place for all of us. So thanks so much. Thank you. Sure. And everyone who's been listening to us, thank you for joining. You've been listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And I'll share um, all the information about Marie's website on my website. So thanks so much and have a great rest of the day.